Hello, hello. My name is Dr. Rachel Gainsbrew, and I am obsessed with all things short-term rentals, revenue streams, and helping you navigate your career, real estate, and your busiest and most wonderful seasons of life. I'm an immigrant, a pharmacist, a wife, and a mom who took one guest room rental and turned it into a multi-property seven-figure real estate business, which has also landed us on TV. I'll teach you the real secrets and everything you need to build a short-term rental business that you love. I discuss the hard topics, mistakes I've made, and the mistakes others have made so you don't have to make them for yourself. Financing, automations, acquisitions, low occupancy, scaling, and building your team all while balancing your life are all subjects to be discussed here. Consider me that one best friend you can come to with your short-term rental business questions. So grab your coffee, get comfortable as you get ready to learn and grow with me. This is the Luxury Short-Term Rental Doctor Podcast. Ryan, oh my goodness. I am so excited to have you with us because we're on kind of track for a series here with these tax deductions. So super, super excited about that. So for those of you who are on the fence thinking, you know what, I'll wait to buy real estate. Well, cost segregations are going to be a little bit less next year. So don't wait too long. Uh, next year, I think it'll be down to 80% of taking advantage of that program. So definitely excited to have you here, Ryan Bakey, I know that you are a household name in the short-term rental world, the luxury short-term rental world as well, because although we have a lot of higher income earners in our group, the challenge is how do we keep a little bit more of that income? And I think tax deductions is one way if we understand it and if we leverage it appropriately, we can operate our business without leaving too much money on the table. So Ryan, thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Do you mind sharing a quick intro with everyone, letting us know who you are, your credentials, what you do, and take it away? Yeah. No, you brought up a good point because number one is focusing on income first. So how can we increase our bottom line? But also after that's said and done, how can we minimize the amount of money that we have to pay Uncle Sam, right? So I'm Ryan. I graduated college with an accounting and finance degree. I went to work at a big four consulting firm. I worked at Deloitte and I was there in corporate and I just wasn't getting as much excitement out of what I did on a day-to-day basis. And I was helping people who are already millionaires and billionaires build wealth. And I wanted to help, you know, like the average everyday person. I really got excited into real estate when I first started at a CPA firm while I was in college and I learned a little bit about the real estate tax deductions. And I got to a point where I I needed to learn everything there is to know about real estate tax and devoted many years of my life to just learning real estate tax. And so that's what I do now. So I run a consulting firm full-time and it's specialized in real estate investors. So you have to be a real estate property owner in order to work with our firm. So we'll walk through what I have presented. Let's see. Awesome. We'll start with, so this is what I like to mention to everybody that this is one of the oldest things that gets thrown around that nothing is certain in life except death and taxes. And it really is true. And taxes are a number one expense that we have. We pay more in taxes every year than food, shelter, and clothing combined. So that's big tax bill every single year. We want to do something to minimize that because the more cash that we have in our pocket, the more we're able to 
Yeah, I use it and build wealth. And I can't promise you eternal life, but hopefully I can save you money on taxes. I can't solve the death part, but I can help with the tax part. So yeah, just a little bit more background. Like I said, I worked at Deloitte. I'm a CPA here in Illinois, and I currently I invest in multifamily house in the suburbs of Chicago and looking to expand short-term rental investing as well. And my calling is down there below, but I help real estate investors boost ROI by using the tax code. This is a picture of me and my fiance at a cabin in Pigeon Forge. It was a beautiful cabin. That's probably my favorite vacation spot is in, so far is in the Smoky Mountains, Tennessee. Nice. So this is going to be like the legal Ryan, the official Ryan, but this is a disclaimer. The, this material is prepared for informational purposes only, and it does not constitute, should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors for engaging in any transaction. My insurance company makes me put this in there before I present anytime. Uh, and so I appreciate just, that. If you don't mind me jumping right in real quick, Ryan, I just wanted to let those who are listening on the podcast know that Ryan is here sharing a presentation with us. Definitely join the Facebook group if you want to be able to see everything that we're sharing live, mm -hmm. as well as if you want to jump in and ask questions live. We're talking taxes. Let's take advantage of this time. I'm going to let Ryan just continue to take it away. And at the end, we'll go through your questions one by one. So thank you all for being here. Awesome. Yeah. So to just outline the topics here, we're going to talk about just how rental income is taxed differently than maybe money we make at a W-2 job or maybe we're self-employed. We're going to talk about what type of expenses that you can deduct. What is depreciation? What are some of the benefits there? What is the property entity structure to hold our rental properties in? And the mantra of tax strategy is how can we defer recognition of income as long as possible legally? Right? So if we make money, we want to be able to hide it or push it off to the future. But if we have expenses, if we have to come out of pocket for something, how do we accelerate that or maybe speed that up? And then we'll talk about the importance of tax preparation versus tax planning. So to start off, all income is classified as either earned or active, earned slash active or passive income, and they're taxed completely different. So if you think of a W-2 job or your earned income, there's limited ways that you can actually reduce your tax liability if you're just a W-2. You can contribute to retirement accounts, HSA accounts, or have more babies. That's all you can probably do if you're just a W-2 to reduce your tax liability. We have what are called Social Security Medicare taxes if you're a W-2. So if you look at your pay stub, you'll have a little line that says Social Security, you'll have a line that says Medicare, and that's gonna be 7.65% if you're a W-2 employee. If you're self-employed or you run your own business, that tax is 15.3%. And it's called FICA taxes. I call it the F word because it's, it really is a working person's tax. If you work and earn money from a living, you're going to get hit with that tax. And that's in addition to the ordinary income tax that you pay on your wages. And that ordinary income tax could be as high as 37%. Again, for earned income. Now, if you look on the right side, passive income through real estate, there's an ability to offset that income with a lot of our expenses or potentially other losses that we might have on properties. And just so you know, these losses are not cash flow losses, but instead these are paper losses that are generated through using the tax code, right? There's no FICA tax when it comes to real estate. So automatically every single dollar that you earn in rental income 
is taxed a little bit less than income that's earned at a W-2 or a day job because you do not have that FICA tax. And the cherry on the top is the appreciation that's earned, that's gained in real estate are taxed at favorable tax rates, either 0%, 15%, or 20%, depending on your tax bracket for that year. Or they can be completely tax-free if you strategize enough. And I dropped a little quote there at the bottom, Robert Kiyosaki, some people hate him, some people don't, but he hits the nail on the head when he says, the rich don't work for money. And when he says that, he means that if you look at any rich or wealthy person's tax return, they have no, no amount of money is shown on W line one for wages or business income or earnings, right? All of their income is coming from the passive bucket categories, either businesses that they own passively or rental properties that they own. So the rich and wealthy, their income shows up in different buckets on a tax return than the ordinary person does. And the first thing we want to kind of do, if everybody wants to complete this, is figure out what your after-tax cost is. And what I mean by this is when you have an expense for your business, it's not a freebie, okay? So you don't get to just, you don't get the entire cost back from the government. If, let's say I have a $1,000 leak or a roof repair. I'm getting... A tax deduction is worth that expense times whatever my tax rate is. So if I, let's say I'm single. And so for me, now I might be in a 35% tax bracket. Well, if I have a $1,000 roof repair, I get to write off $1,000. So if I multiply that $1,000 times 35%, I really only come out of pocket $650 because the government is subsidizing part of that Whatever that, whatever that is, that repair, that business expense, maybe I hire a coach, whatever expense it is, that the government is subsidizing it. And you could think of it as a coupon, right? Everybody uses coupon. I don't know. My mom still uses coupons, but I don't use coupons as much. But think of it as like a coupon, right? So government's giving you a coupon equal to your tax rate. And it's saying, hey, if you use this in your business or real estate, this is how much we're going to give you off of that purchase. So what expenses are deductible? Pretty much anything that's ordinary necessary to your business. So I have some of them listed here, as opposed when it comes to short-term rentals, but there's so much more. Your advertising, your listing fees, Airbnb, verbal optimization, cleaning and maintenance, utilities, insurance, any legal professional fees. If you have consulting or coach fees, repairs, supplies, the mortgage interest on the properties, the property taxes, pretty much anything that's ordinary necessary to your business except the mortgage principal payment. We're not allowed to deduct mortgage principal because it's our equity anyway, and the government's not gonna let us have our have it both ways. So we're not able to deduct mortgage payment principal. But the biggest expense or deduction of them all is actually something we don't come out of pocket for. And it's known as depreciation. And it's really hard to explain this to somebody who's never heard of it before, but it's Essentially, it's the way you recoup your cost of that asset over a period of time. If you're dealing with long-term rentals, it's going to be 27 and a half years. If you're dealing with short-term rentals or commercial real estate, it's going to be 39 years of recovery time. And what that is, whatever that purchase price of that real estate is, they're going to allow you to recoup that cost over those given years. What you can think of it is almost tax-free cash because you don't actually come out of pocket for the depreciation. It's just, it shows up on your P&L as a, what we call a phantom expense, right? Because you don't have to, you're not paying money 
for your building to go down in value, quote unquote. It's just, it's something that exists in the tax code to favor rich and wealthy people, pretty much. And the last point is depreciation is mandatory. It's not optional. So even if you do not claim the depreciation on your tax return, you will be required to pay it back as if you did with something that's known as depreciation recapture tax. And to kind of show you how a little bit how depreciation works is in this example, let's say we have a $500,000 purchase price on a property and we're going to have $80,000 of gross revenue. Maybe our expenses are 60% of revenue. So our net operating income, the, the net cash flow from that property, let's say it's $32,000. Well, we should have to pay taxes on $32,000, but we're not because we have depreciation. The depreciation is based on the building value of whatever the property that we own. So in this case, I made 32,000, but with depreciation, I get to show, I get to tell the IRS, hey, my taxable income is actually only 20,462 because of depreciation. And I threw down there for a slide later, let's say we have a 25% down payment. This would equal 26% cash on cash return. Now I said in the beginning, the mantra of tax planning and learning the tax code is how can we defer recognition of income as long as possible? But if we have expenses, if we have to come out of pocket for something, we want to be able to accelerate that and speed it up. And that's where what's called a cost segregation study comes into play. So instead of depreciating that asset over 39 years or 27 and a half years, we're able to speed up that depreciation most and take it faster. So instead of getting only getting 11,000 the first year, maybe we're able to get $112,000 the first year. So if you look on the right, the left is just what we saw before. And on the right is speeding up an example of what speeding up the depreciation looks like. And if you notice, everything stays the same. Our net operating income stays the same, but it's that depreciation that changes. So instead of getting 11,000, we get 112,000. So instead of telling the IRS, we have 20,000, $462 of profit, we tell the IRS, hey, we actually had a loss here. We lost $80,500. Well, what happens to this loss? Well, it's known as what's called a passive activity loss. And so what's really cool about this is, let's say you had long-term rentals that were cash flowing really well, or maybe you had another short-term rental, or you just got out of a commercial real estate deal and you had a lot of equity or gains in that property. All your passive losses and your gains will net each other at the end of the day. So you could have income coming from long-term rentals that are cash flowing well. You have this loss for your short-term rental. You'll be able to use the loss from the short-term rental against your long-term rentals. But the coolest thing in regards to short-term rentals is what's called material participation and being able to use the loss that's generated from the short-term rental against your non-passive income like your W-2 or your 1099 or even stock income. And this example is I'm able to qualify for material participation and we'll go through that what that looks like in a little bit. I'm able to take that $80,000 loss and at my 35% tax rate that I mentioned before, if I multiply 80,500 times 35%, that's going to save me $28,000 in taxes because I'm going to be able to take that loss against my income. And so that turns a 26% cash on cash return into a 48% cash on cash return because 
I'm able to add in those tax savings that I got from investing in that short-term rental back into my cash flow for a true cash on cash year one number. And so we've seen this in a lot of clients where, you know, cash on cash goes from 20 to 35, goes from 25 to 35. And this example goes from 26 to 48. We've seen all sorts of jumps where it almost makes the deal. Some, in some cases, it makes the deal. Now, I will tell people, you do not want to invest in properties just solely for the tax benefits. But if the deal makes sense and you get to add it on tax benefits, this 28000 in cash that's in your pocket can swing a deal massively, right? To, just to, to qualify for this, I don't want to get too far into the weeds of what it takes to qualify. But just know this, that the average guest in the property has to stay seven days or less. So if you add up the total amount of stay, total amount of days that your property was running out for, divide that by the number of unique stays. So the amount of trips that were booked, as long as that's 7.0 or less, you're good to go on that part. The second part is you have to meet one of these seven material participation tests. So just for this part, I'm just going to mention this. If you do not self-manage your property, you're not going to qualify. Okay. So if you outsource it to a property manager, you're out of luck. This is for people who are actually self-managing their properties, which bodes well for most short-term rental investors because we know that having property managers kills cash flow anyway. So most of us are self-managing our properties to begin with, which bodes well for tax savings and strategy too. So we'll switch gears and kind of talk about entity structuring. So I get the question a lot, hey, I'm buying my first short-term rental. You know, should I buy it in my personal name? Should I buy it in an LLC? How should I own rental properties? And just know this, I'll save you so much time and headache. You don't even have to watch a bunch of videos. Rental real estate, anything that appreciates in value that we expect to go up, which is typically rental real estate, should be held in either your personal name with a really good umbrella policy, like a really good umbrella insurance policy, single member LLCs, or multi-member LLCs that are taxed as partnerships. The reason why we say this is because there's a lot of flexibility when it comes to owning property inside of either single member LLCs or multi-member LLCs that you don't get if you hold the property in corporations. If you own rental real estate or anything that exists inside of a corporation, as that property appreciates in value, it can potentially create adverse tax consequences for us that we don't want. So whenever we want, try to get rental properties in and out, it's very hard to do that in a corporation as opposed to a single member LLC or a multi-member LLC tax as a partnership. But just below that, if you're a wholesaler, a flipper, an agent, a broker, you may want to consider an S corporation to help you save on self-employment tax. Something separate, but worth noting, all of these types of activities here does not require you to buy. We're talking about buying and holding assets. Wholesalers are not buying and holding. Flippers are not buying and holding. Agents, brokers, same thing, right? Any asset that appreciates in value, typically rental real estate, we want that in a personal name, single member LLC, or a multi-member LLC, taxes a partnership. So we talked about some, the two mantras of tax planning is how do we defer recognition of income as long as possible, right? But if we have expenses, we want to take them immediately. Well, these are some strategies to defer recognition of income. So the first one, we'll talk about is a cash out refinance or a HELOC. If you're listening to this now, most people are probably looking at towards doing HELOCs just because the rates are just through the roof now. 
What's nice about the cash out refinance or HELOC is it's a pretty quick way to tap into the appreciation of your property. So as opposed to having to sell it or yeah, pretty much having to sell it, you're able to tap into that appreciation. It's also a non-taxable event. So the IRS, when you take on a loan or you borrow against your assets, the IRS doesn't see that as a taxable event. So it's a way for you to grab that equity appreciate that appreciation without realizing a taxable event. And then the third part is ownership, right? We're able to maintain ownership of the property while also taking advantage of the appreciation tax-free. So instead of selling our property to get cash to buy another property, we're able to borrow against properties that we already have that have maybe have gone up in value, or maybe we get a new, we get a new appraisal after we show rental income for a few years. The cash out refinance or HELOC is a great way to, again, defer that recognition of income as long as possible. Another strategy that we'll talk about is a lot of people, it's called a 1031 like kind exchange. And it's basically where you trade up. So you, if you remember playing Monopoly, it's like where you take the four green little houses and then you have a big red hotel. It's almost like that. As long as you keep kicking that can and you take your sale proceeds from one property and roll it into a different property, you're able to defer that gain for a longer period of time. What's important about this is you have to work with what's known as a qualified intermediary. So it's somebody who facilitates the transaction for you. That money, when you get the sale closing, you get the proceeds, that's not able to hit your personal bank account. It has to go through a QI's account and the transaction has to be facilitated through them. One of the things that's not so good about this is the timing of that. So you have 45 days once you sell a property to identify a replacement property and up to 180 days to close on that replacement property. And in a seller's market where properties are flying off, it's really hard to go through a 1031 exchange because properties are just getting snatched up left and right. So in a highly appreciated market, it, 1031 exchange may not be the way to go because you may sell your property and not be able to find a replacement property within the 180 days. And then you're going to have a taxable event. The last one I mentioned before is generating passive losses on certain properties to use those losses against properties that have income. So for that example, you know, let's say a lot of people that get into short-term rentals, they have long-term rentals to begin with, or they, you know, they had two or three long-term rentals and then they buy that for short-term rental. Well, a lot of those long-term rentals, because they bought them years ago and interest rates are up now, those long-term rentals are going to be cash flowing pretty well. And they're going to need losses coming elsewhere to offset those long-term rentals income. Generating passive losses through newly acquired real estate is a way to do this. Again, you're able to own all the properties still, accelerate the depreciation on newly acquired properties to use those losses to offset the income from older properties. So it's almost, it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're taking income that you got from the long-term rentals. I'm going to take this. I'm going to go buy a short-term rental. I'm going to use the losses from the short-term models to offset the income that I got from the long-term rentals and kind of repeat the same process. Another short-term rental. That short-term rental loss is going to be used to offset my income from my three long-term models and my other short-term rental. And you kind of repeat that process and you keep kicking that can down the road and it's going to save you taxes in the immediate present, right? That you're able to save and invest and maybe you have other businesses that you want to invest in or you have more property you want to buy. Paying taxes doesn't help with cash flow. If we're able to kick the can down the road. It, it bodes well for us. And the flexibility of the losses too. When you have a passive loss, you know, let's say I have losses that I'm not able to use 
those losses actually carry forward and you're able to use those next year or the following year against rental income or maybe you had a sale of a property. So those losses, when you generate them, if you're not able to use them, it's not the end of the world because you're able to carry them forward and use them against future years rental income. So some of the strategies to accelerate expenses, we already talked about bonus appreciation a little bit, but with bonus appreciation, there's minimal out-of-pocket costs. You've already bought the asset. You've already started renting the property, placed it in a service. Maybe it's a vehicle. You've already bought the property. So you might as well as incur the extra fee to get the study done and accelerate those benefits. And the either your CPA or the cost segregation team can provide a cost-benefit analysis for you to know whether or not it's worth it, worthwhile for you or not. We have some taxpayers that Maybe they're in a very low tax bracket now because they're just getting started off. Or maybe they just quit their job to do rentals. If you're in a low tax bracket, it may not be worth accelerating the depreciation because the net present value, the benefit that you're getting from that is so minimal compared to maybe doing it later down the road when you're in a 32 or a 35% tax bracket. And lastly, the tax savings. A tax savings that we have today is more money that we can invest in our businesses and our real estate. And what I like to tell people is pay the tax with the tax savings that you acquired. So again, this, the depreciation, 1031 exchanges, all it's doing is kicking the tax can down the road. But if we had this idea in our mind that we're going to use the tax savings that we got in years one through five to ultimately help us pay the tax bill in maybe year six or seven. And that's what we're doing here with planning. Another thing people often misses, you can prepay future expenses that you might have. So we're cash basis taxpayers, 99% of us, which means we get the deduction for something once we pay for it, put it in service. So for people who are, let's say it's November or December, and you're looking out into the future and you're saying, hey, I know I had this expense in January, this expense in February, maybe I had this coming up in March, you can pay your, your future expenses now, get the tax deduction for it now, as opposed to excuse me, paying for it next year and getting the tax deduction on your next year's tax return. So I did this past year a lot. I said, I have to pay for this marketing. I have to pay, you know, maybe $10,000 worth of stuff. If I'm able to pay for it now before the year's over, as opposed to next year, I'm able to get a tax deduction for it today. And that provides flexibility too, because nobody's forcing us to have to pay in the future if we don't want to. The last one is, financing purchases. So maybe it's a vehicle. We talked about real estate, but mainly vehicle or a repair or an expense or whatever you have for the business. When you finance an asset, you're able to write off or depreciate the fair market value of whatever it is you're buying in the year that you go through that transaction. But you're able to take out, you're able to pay it off over a period of time. So the best example is like a car. You know, you might buy a $60,000 car on a seven-year note. Well, that car, that $60,000 deduction that you're getting, you're going to get it in year one when you start using the car for your business. But you're going to be able to pay that off over six to seven years or whatever your loan term is. So it's a way to get a tax deduction now, but pay people back later. So again, when it comes to net present value and time value of money, we want to accelerate those tax deductions now and we'll pay people back in the future. So the difference between tax planning and tax filing, 
is this tax planning is what you do during the year to cross your T's, dot your I's, and figure out what you need to do in order to have a favorable result come April 15th. If all you're doing is waiting until the year is over to start planning or preparing, you're really SOL because the tax planning is done as the year goes on. So the tax year exists from January 1st to December 31st. I'll say this. Wealthy people know exactly how much they're going to pay or get back on April 15th before April 15th. It's the middle income, lower class people that find out what they're going to get back or owe come April 15th. And if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know, then I don't know what, what does. Again, rich and wealthy people plan for taxes throughout the year. And it's the middle to lower income people that are surprised by a, a tax bill come April 15th. But with proper planning, you can really dial that in to exactly know what you're going to owe or get back or what you need to do from a, pers a tax perspective to have favorable results. You know, maybe you're buying new properties this year, but you're also selling properties this year. How do you account for that? What should you do first? What order do you need to do? How much new property do you need to buy? What are the steps that you have to take? All of that is important when it comes to planning. And if you're just waiting till the year is over to hand that stuff off to your accountant, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. We'll say that. So just, yeah, this is the end of the presentation. I How to get in contact with me. It's just Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I'm on TikTok now too. It's just at learn like a CPA, at learn like a CPA. I don't have any promotional marketing concepts yet, but that's where you can get in contact with me if you want. Awesome. Oh my goodness. That was so, so good. I love you. everything about that, Ryan. What about limitation of loss? If you make too much money in your day job, can we still deduct? And I think, yeah, you talked about some really nifty ways that we can deduct or reduce those taxes with those who have W-2s. Did you want to go over that again a little bit, Ryan? Yeah. So she might be referring to ask if the loss is related to a long-term rental or a short-term rental. Yeah. Because if you have a long-term rental and it has a loss, if you make a certain amount of money, you're not going to be able to take the loss against your W-2. So once you start, once you make over $100,000, you're limited in the amount of losses that you're able to take against from long-term rentals against your W-2. So ultimately, if you make more than $150,000, you're not able to take any long-term rental losses against your W-2. That's why short-term rentals are so powerful is because there is no limitation. You could be making a million dollars, $500,000. If you have short-term rental losses that qualify, you're going to be able to take those against your W-2. So what she's referring to is this little nuance where you're able to take a rental loss up to a certain extent if it's a long-term rental. So that whoever's preparing the return or if she's preparing the return doesn't know that short-term rentals are an exception to that rule. Right? Okay. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you could definitely leverage that to take advantage if you have a W-2 and that's the beauty of it. A lot of folks in our group are still working a W-2 and a lot of folks, you know, have transitioned to business ownership. But for those who are still working your W-2 and you feel as though you're getting taxed at the highest rate or at a significant rate where you're not taking home as much as what you would expect, this is definitely a strategy. And that's why I love short-term rentals, Ryan. I think it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. I would say too, look at, 
depending on her income bracket this year compared to next year, mm-hmm. it'd be more beneficial to not take the loss this year and maybe just take it next year, depending on the income bracket. But I mean, it is a gift that keeps on giving because you're able to, you know, buy a property, generate a lot of tax savings that you're able to use and purchase the next property and keep snowballing and accumulating that wealth. Awesome. Awesome. Would you recommend for my husband and I to create an LLC to help cover the hours required for STR monetizations? Or do you mean material participation? Or maybe she means monetization. Ryan, is that something? I think she might be just referring to, do you need a, do you need an LLC to write off all your expenses? The answer is no. So you're able to take your expenses for your rental properties, whether you have an LLC or not. So don't think that you need to have an LLC in order to deduct all your costs. That's absolutely not true. You could just buy a property, start renting it out, have expenses. Doesn't need to be in an LLC or anything. You're able to take all those expenses. And the same is said if you met if you met material participation hours, same answer. Whether or not you have it in an LLC or not, you're still going to be able to take those deductions, count those hours, et cetera. Awesome. Awesome. Is it more advantageous to do a HELOC or a 1031 exchange? Or give us some scenarios. Let's play some scenarios out because they seem real different to me, but I'm sure there's some underlying. And let me give you a little bit of background. High income earner looking to retire in a few years from surgery. Yeah, just a little background there. So you can maybe... Gauge. Um, yeah, I was, I mean, off the top of my head, just thinking either one works, right? Your HELOC, you're still deferring your tax gain because the big thing you want to think about here with a high earner that's about to retire, they're in a very high tax bracket right now, but when they go to retire, they're going to be in a much, much lower tax bracket. So we want to speed up, accelerate all the deductions that we can get now when we're in higher tax bracket, and then ultimately pay that tax when we are in a lower tax bracket because we're retired. So either way you go there, I think you're making the right decision because you're kicking that can down the road. If you sell the asset outright without doing a 1031, you got a tax bill now. We don't want the tax bill now. We want the tax bill later. So the 1031 allows you to do that, but also the HELOC allows you to do that also. So if you think you can buy in the right market, if you think you're up, up to speed with the requirements of doing the 1031 exchange, sure, go and do that. But you're giving up your property for another property, right? Versus you could potentially use the HELOC, take money out and buy another property, maintain control of the first property with the HELOC. But either way you go there, I think you're thinking smart, but just remember that super high tax bracket now, we wanna get all of our deductions and our expenses now. We wanna pay taxes when we're retired and we're not in a higher high tax bracket. Assuming high tax bracket. Yeah, it is. And something you slid in there, Ryan, you know, that is in my wheelhouse is the actual property or the market you're investing in. So if it is a property that you're like home see, home saw about, right, kind of lukewarm about, then perhaps lean towards one. But if it's a property that you love and it's generating, you know, the income that you want, then yeah, explore both options. Right, Ryan. But if it's a property you're like, you know, it's not yeah, a, a, a perf- it's not performing great, right? So I would lean towards the HELOC just because, you know, once you sell that property in 1031, it's game on. Like you're, you have to identify and you have to replace that within 180 days 
the HELOC, there's no requirement for you to do anything with the money. It could sit there. You could spend none of the money on the HELOC if you don't have to. So I would lean towards the HELOC more before the 1031 exchange. If knowing what I know in 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a great conversation because a lot of people are in this position right now, Ryan. They're looking at their home and it may be this little home that's really great, but there's all this equity and they can, you know, level up a little bit. But I had a consultation a little earlier with one of the members in the mastermind. What's interesting about her is she has a really robust real estate background. And she's eyeing this one particular property that has been on and off the market since February. So it is not something that, you know, it is something that's a little bit more niche. It has its own personality, but we think it can make a phenomenal short-term rental. But the fact that no one's biting, right? <laughs> In a market that's scary. Yeah, it is scary, but it's a, a market she's very familiar with. It's on six acres. It just, the potential is there. It sits on a lake. But it's very dated and she has a team of contractors in her back pocket. So you would have to be that unique individual who can absorb something like that to make it happen, I think. So this is a property she's looking at and it's been sitting there and she's identified it. But to me, that's almost rare, <laughs> if not just straight up rare. So right. which is a lot to consider there. So I love the direction of this conversation. All right, next question. <laughs> Are there any tax benefits to switching an SCR from personal name to an LLC? Any tax benefits? None. None. You're going to be able to get the same. You'll, the net result will be the same, whether it's in a, your personal name or the single member LLC. The only thing with a single member LLC is obviously you're going to have liability protection. You're going to have an extra filing fee too with your state. Most states have like a, uh, report that's due or like a annual report. So from an from a tax perspective, it doesn't change anything. You're gonna come out the same. It's just with the LLC, you're gonna have liability protection, right? So you have your personal assets, your LLC that owns a rental property. If something were to happen, like a, a guest that stays there, they're not gonna be able to come after your personal assets, right? That's all the LLC does. A single member LLC does. Awesome. So no tax benefits more from a liability perspective. Something you mentioned a little earlier, Ryan, with that umbrella insurance, though, that can help protect you in terms yeah. of liability. So is it a moot point to to switch from a having a property under your name to an LLC if you can just carry your umbrella insurance? Yeah, I think for most investors, and I'm not able to give legal advice, but right. what I really try to tell people is you want to really what it comes down to is how much equity do you have at stake to lose that, that you have in that property. You know, most people they'll say, Hey, as soon as that property, maybe I get a hundred thousand dollars of equity or 200,000. Some people it's 500,000 of equity in that property. That's too much to risk to lose. So I'm going to put it in an LLC. But for some people like just getting started off investing, you don't want to have your shoes tied together in knots before you start a race. Because there's all these people that are like, what do I do this? And do I need this LLC? Just get freaking started, right? And just go. A, a lot of people worry about, do I need this? Do I need that? But I think it's there to keep people back. Right? But yeah, you can go with a personal umbrella policy. That's fine. If you ask an attorney if you need an LLC, is like asking a barber if you need a haircut. 
you're they're gonna say yes, right? And even though you may not, right? You might have like a you know, let's say you have like a two hundred fifty thousand dollars short term rental. You're gonna be just fine with an umbrella policy, in my opinion. You're gonna be just fine with a personal umbrella policy on that home. Awesome. Now, when you start moving up, whereas then it's like, okay, well, we want to get some additional coverage or additional insurance. Awesome. Awesome. And so let me caveat this because this is a wonderful conversation. A lot of our members are healthcare providers. And so their budgets sometimes can be upwards of the, you know, highest six figure. We have one member under contract for 2.2. And so those are individuals that I would think <laughs> and good thing they do reach out to their wise counsel and they have financial planners on board and wealth managers as well to advise them. So once you do get to that point, the picture is a little bit different and you have mm -hmm. several <laughs> individuals on your team and you're not just watching me on YouTube giving free advice <laughs> Ryan giving free advice to, yeah. to kind of just, you know, base all of your base all this of your strategies. So awesome. Ryan, I thought it was just so impactful. And I felt indicted when you said the wealthy knows their taxes and what they're going to either owe, receive, and before the years, before tax date. And it's like, seriously? Yep. <laughs> and it's something that my tax planner always talks about. I'm like, why? Send me your paperwork. Do this. So it is something that I do need to get better at. And I have made some strides this year. And I do need to continue to do better and better, but I'm not going to lie. I felt really indicted. I was like, is he attacking me personally or? No, no, no attack. <laughs> oh my goodness. So take that as a lesson, right? What would you not be eligible for? Material participation is what she's referring to. Yeah. Again, if they're short-term rentals, average stay seven days or less, and that you actually perform all the work yourself and you have those hours requirement you're going to be able to use the loss against your income without the limitation there. And this is all the more reason, guys. I mean, you just sold our whole network here in our community. This is all the more reason why it's important to manage on your own and, you know, not yeah. use a property manager. And nothing against property managers. I mean, there's an absolute time and place for that. But there are things that you can actually do and train someone you know, as an assistant to help you to manage without giving that chunk, that percentage away. So definitely tap in. We we have trainings here every single week. This is our jam students within our program who thought that they could never self-manage or self-managing right now. But you do need systems. You do need to understand that this is a hospitality business. It is not completely passive. It's not, it's active. I'm not gonna lie. It's active. But once you get your communications down and you find a good cleaning team, I think you will be set up for success. So very doable. I feel like what you're saying is contrary, unfortunately, to what your CPA is saying. So do a little bit more digging with that. Ryan, do you have any recommendation for what that CPA or her tax person can take a look at to support her case a little bit more? So I have a podcast that talks a little bit more about this, oh. uh, but if they're really wanting to dive into it to nerd out, you can look at some of the IRS publications or really just the tax code because it states it right in there that if you dig deep enough, you'll see just the interplay between long-term rentals where they do have limitations of losses compared to short-term rentals where there's 
maybe not the same limitations. My my Facebook group's a good page to do that. I have tons of con- like previous content about that. That's just what's the name of your Facebook group again, Ryan? It's, it's called Tax Strategies. Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. Yeah, is Facebook group. And like I said, my podcasts have tons of content. I'm trying to think what else I could pull out there. There's other real estate CPAs that have content too. So it's not just me that's talking about it, but there's a few others also. Oh yeah, that's a big deal because I know some of the students who joined our mastermind around October, they're like, we got to get a property now and manage it for (laughs) at least 10 days this year before, you know, the year was up. And so it was a mad dash for sure. Yeah. And yeah, they, they were able to accomplish it. I see, you know who I'm talking about, you, Dr. Dada. So <laughs> she bought the most amazing chalet in, in the, where is it, the Pacific Northwest. So absolutely gorgeous. Is the material participation only accounted for when you purchase a property? Are you considering maybe like arbitrage versus purchase? I think that might be it, but let me let Ryan t- chime in real quick. Yeah, so the material participation refers to properties that you actually own yourself. So you're not able to get material participation hours for time that's spent like servicing other people's properties. The other way you might be asking that question is, do I need to materially participate every single year that I own the property in order to qualify? The answer is you need to material participate in the year that you place the property into service. So let's say year one, maybe I buy the property in June or July. I get it rented out, say in August, I get it rented out from August to December. If I can materially participate that year, take my tax deductions, get my benefits, then I can hand it off to a property manager the year after. You're not required to keep that same level of involvement after the year's over. Maybe that's also what they were asking. So that concept, you know, we're not, because there's nothing in there in that sense you need to like keep up with it every single year. So ideally, you know, the strategy might be buy the property, do the repairs, get it optimized, get it set up yourself, get your material participation. After that first year, hand it off to another, to a property management team, because you've already taken your tax benefits that you can get from it. But do keep in mind though, the hours requirement, if you hand it off to a property management team, you're not going to be able to get your hours from that property because they're the ones doing all the work. And so you can potentially use hours for one property to help you qualify for tax deductions for another property, if that makes sense. So that's why I always tell people after the first year that you've used your property, make sure you keep tracking your hours just in case we have to use them for potentially other properties. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Super helpful. How do you get the bonus depreciation? I was a little bit lost on that. He definitely wants to take advantage of- yeah. The tax savings from RW2. So uh, when I went back to that that slide, so I said that short-term rentals are depreciated typically over 39 years. And that's the entire purchase price. The entire building is over 39 years. What the bonus depreciation, the cost segregation does is it looks at that building and it breaks it up based on components. So the furniture, the, the lights, the bed, everything is its own asset class. So instead of 39 years, you might have an item that lasts for five years or seven years or 15 years. Anything that has an asset class of 20 years or less, we're able to bonus depreciate in the year that we buy the property. So cabinets, the flooring, the millwork, all the stuff inside of the property can be bonus depreciated 
if we do the cost segregation study. Nice, nice. That's mm. a good one. Can you do a 1031 exchange with a property that you've owned for only six months? Has it been rented out? Yes, it has been. Was the initial intent of owning the property for it to be a, a rental for a while? Because with the 1031 yes. exchange rules, they're very specific on who can do one. So for example, like you're not able to fix and flip, you're not able to 1031 fix and flips because fix and flips again are like business activities, not investment property. So as long as you can prove that, I mean, typically we like to see clients hold the property for at least a year, have tenants or guests stay in there for justification purposes. But as long as you're able to prove that the initial intent of that property was to own it for a long period of time and have it as investment property, there's no timetable on 1031 exchanges. It's, it all, there's a, there's a factor test list that they'll look at, but there's nothing that prevents you from 1031ing a rental property after six months. Awesome. If you purchase a home in December, do you need a guest to check in before the 31st to be able to take advantage of the tax deductions? Yes. So good question. So it is a good order, question that some people order, are in that position. Yeah. In order to establish that the average guest stays seven days or less, you need to have at least two stays. Because if you have just one person stay, that's not an average of seven days or less because there's nothing to average. It's just one. The denominator is one. So you need to have at least two stays of that tax year in order for it to be qualified as a short-term rental for tax purposes. Awesome. And you know, other people were thinking, and thank you for being brave enough to ask. No, that's a good question. That's a very good question. <laughs> and thank you for joining us, Ryan. Again, thank you. I so appreciate yep. you. I hope you all were inspired to take a look at your own financial situation and be one of those individuals who know what your tax profile looks like before tax day. Hello. I want that for each and every one of you in 2023. So let's get our planning together you know do this because it's definitely feasible ryan i so appreciate you like breaking it down for us and making yeah. it palatable and pretty easy to understand so that means the world to me that you would come to my community and just share this wealth of information so i thank you thank you so much any final yeah, no words before we shut it all down <laughs> don't wait to invest invest and wait ain't that the truth here's all i got I love it. And that's a mic drop for all of you waiting on the sidelines for the crash to come. That's a mic drop right there. <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys and have a good one. I'll see you next week.